Hi everybody, this is Gatsar. A quick appeal before uh, we begin today's conversation. I spend a inordinate amount of time providing you with free content. Many companies have contacted me trying to get me to monetize my content behind paywalls and so on. I've steadfastly refused to do so on the premise that I'd like to reach a wide audience. Ideas are important to be consumed. These conversations are important. The content is important. And so, you know, I've spent who knows how many hours over the years and how many heartaches receiving all sorts of hate, all sorts of risks taken because I do what I do. And yet very few people uh, support my efforts in very direct ways, meaning in a remunerative way. Uh, If you're in a position to do so, I would ask you to go to my YouTube channel uh, at the the homepage. In the top right-hand corner, there's a subscribe star button or a Patreon button or a PayPal button, which you can use to show your support for the show so that I can keep this available freely for everyone. Uh, Alternatively, just a few days ago, I set up a system that YouTube provides for its content creators just below the videos you know, where, where you see the thumbs up and thumbs down, there is now an icon, it's written thanks with a heart and a dollar sign. If you click that one, then you can donate per show, you know, you really love the show, you want to donate x number of dollars, then you can go ahead and do so. Please consider supporting my work, I wish to continue to provide all of this, uh, you know, freely, not behind a, uh, a paywall. And believe me, There are a lot of subscription-based models out there now. Many of those companies are contacting me. And I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to be the idiot martyr who just keeps doing what I do at great personal cost and effort, but never being remunerated for it in an extrinsic way. I think that's only fair as an exchange. I've spent many years doing this, and maybe now all of the fans that I have could... I mean, look, it's an insurance policy, right? You're, You're protecting those that are putting their next on the line to do this. And if you are listening to this on one of the podcasts, I haven't set up yet a a financial support system via the audio podcast, but you can certainly go to my YouTube channel, as I mentioned earlier, and donate in the same way that anyone else who's watching it via YouTube would have done so. So I hope that you will consider doing so irrespective of whether you consume uh, my show uh, on YouTube or via the podcast platforms. Thanks again. And here's today's guest. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Saad, The Sad Truth. Another fantastic guest today. I've got Professor Jason Hill, who's a professor of philosophy at DePaul University, the old stomping ground of Barack Obama, Chicago, that is. Uh, how are you doing, Jason? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, great! Great to see you again. Uh, we we had we held a chat. You were kind enough to invite me for a chat back in uh, I think July, that ended up becoming a uh, a transcript of our conversation in uh, Front Page Max uh, magazine. So thank you for that. Before I cede the floor to you, I want people to know of your books. So you've written five books, and so let me just quickly read them here. Uh, I'll get to the latest one that came out today last. So there is. Um, We have overcome an immigrant's letter to the American people. Maybe we should talk a bit about that at some point. Civil disobedience and the politics of identity when we should not get along. Beyond blood identities, post-humanity in the 21st century. 
And then your earliest book was Becoming a Cosmopolitan, What It Means to Be a Human Being in the New Millennium. And your book that came out today, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. So let's begin with that provocative title. Do white people owe black people anything? Go for it. Well, they certainly owe them respect for their inalienable individual rights, and they owe them um, courtesy and, uh, and and respect. But I really wrote this book because um, there are a lot of what you so eloquently called in your book, The Parasitic Mind, a lot of ideopathogens floating around in our culture that is causing a lot of divisions. And one of the ideopathogens, I think, is this notion that white people owe black people reparations for slavery or for what is thought to be the continuous um, repercussions of slavery, which are flowing inevitably, some people think, in the lives of black people today. And I take the reparations argument very seriously. And I've in this book, I've examined the so-called residual effects of slavery that are still affecting blacks and are every single disparity among the races is attributed to slavery. And I wanted to take those arguments very seriously to systematically examine them and then to debunk them and to show that they're not true and to explain to the American readers and to readers across the world why reparations would be a bad thing um, and to show that the foundations for black freedom are to be found actually in the Constitution, the 1776 Constitution, and that reparations in some sense um, have been made towards blacks um, throughout the history of this country, beginning in 1776, the Civil War, and I get into the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which I really, really analyze, and I actually call it a social eugenics movement, affirmative action, and um, black studies programs, and all sorts of gestures that this country has made, uh, have made to, towards blacks. So. Whites owe blacks a lot of things. Reparations is not one of them. Um, but I wanted to get to the roots of this claim so that people, both blacks and whites, could have some sort of intellectual ammunition to understand the origins of these claims and how to best defend themselves and defend our country against these, what I call, really egregious claims for reparations. Before we get to some of the efforts of debunking say that you know whatever the top three arguments that you debunk are there any arguments on the reparations side that you know you're i mean maybe you might not agree with but you find compelling worth listening to what what would be the top argument for for why reparations are still owed today well, there is, since the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed, which brought full equality, blacks full equality before the law, there still continues to be discrimination against blacks. We could systematically point to, we could point to systemic racism in one respect that continued after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was redlining. Um, people like Tommy Nisi Colts and Ibram Kendi have argued, for example, that redlining it's still a problem that continued way into the 1970s and into the 1980s. I take that claim very seriously. Can you explain what redlining is before, for, for our viewers who don't know what that is? Well, among other things, it's when um, the, the, the government, in collusion with banks, um, makes certain zoning laws and certain um, um, 
create certain prohibitory laws that systematically discriminate against blacks from accessing loans and accessing the means to acquire housing um, or purchasing homes um, in certain areas that are zoned off um, in very surreptitious uh, ways from blacks. I argue that any form of discrimination that has occurred since the 1964 Civil Rights Act belong in courts of law. They're not proper candidates for reparations. Um, another claim that one could take quite seriously is that um, the public school systems are financed by property taxes. And I think this is problematic. I am not an advocate of public, public government schools, but once we do have government schools in existence, there should be some sort of equitable allocation of resources. But one of the, the one of the claims made by the advocates of reparations is that public schools are discriminatory in the sense that rich people have a chance to send their children to the best schools because the taxes that are um, forged are, or the taxes that are that are um, taken from them are used to finance those schools and blacks live in a lot of blacks live in poor neighborhoods and therefore their taxes are funded uh, are funding schools that are that are inadequate um, that's not a case for reparations that's a case for either overhauling the government schools completely that's a that's a that's a case for issuing tax vouchers to black parents um, that's a case for school choice for charter schools I've written extensively about abolishing that part of the tax that parents would use to fund their children's private education. That is not tax parents on the income that they would need to send their children to to schools. And just getting away with government schools entirely and going the route of private schools. And in a free market, I think that we would find that competition would not accelerate the tuition costs, but in a private system in which people are competing among themselves uh, for uh, a better education that the prices would actually, the cost of tuition would actually lower because it would be in the interest of educators to cater to a large swath of individuals, in this case blacks, who are seeking education. I think one other claim for reparations um, that uh, I don't take, <laughs> it's hard to take it seriously but it is worth mentioning is something called uh, white privilege. That is people who have white skin occupy in the hierarchy of opportunities that avail themselves to individuals a better chance of taking advantage of those opportunities or, or, or those opportunities avail themselves to people who are white. Now, I don't know that this is entirely untrue but I don't know what white people are supposed to do about this short of, and I make the case in the book, in one of the chapters that uh, annihilate themselves, which is part of the abolitionist movement. Um, or, or white children could stop having kids, right? I mean, is that what you mean? That, white, white people could stop having children. Yeah, that would be, or, that would be you're a good ally to people of color if you simply maybe castrate yourself. That would be a nice way to go, right? Well, that's what the abolitionists, the black abolitionists and the black nihilists and the Afro, Afro um, pessimists might deal with it for the fourth chapter of my book. That's what they actually advocate. I think it's a ludicrous argument and no self-respecting white person would ever, would ever cede that argument at all. But 
um, there is, we all enjoy, yeah, privilege. We, you and I enjoy some sense of educational privilege. We're professors, we have PhDs, I have five college degrees, you have, I think, as many degrees as I have. I was a double major with two undergraduates, an associate and a PhD. I mean, some of us enjoy beauty privilege. <laughs> Not, there, are more, there are people who are more handsome than you and I, and there are people who are more beautiful. Some people enjoy um, athletic prowess. I'm not the athletic um, equal of my countryman Usain Bolt. He's much more of a superior athlete than I am. <laughs> than I am. What the hell are people supposed to do about their? I call them blessings from right. God, right? So the best thing I think what we uh, white people can do is not to place obstructions in the path um, of the efforts that blacks have exercised on behalf of their 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 lives. And but but asking white people to somehow democratize their privilege or their 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 whatever privilege they find themselves in possession of is lunacy is ludicrous. I'm not going to slum down my cognitive capabilities and sound like the village idiot and dim my light so that someone with who's of lesser abilities can shine. So those are some of the claims that I think um, are worth listening to, but I don't think that they they stand the test of reason or logic. But I think I think for in order for the reparations argument, I mean, I, I mean, you got into the you know some of the the details, which is fine. But at a, at a sort of meta level, the reason why reparations as an argument can 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 you know stand any scrutiny is you have to do sort of it's a two prong approach. First, you have to say that there's no statute of limitation on something horrible that happened to in the past. Mm-hmm. So, so right, so, that, so it, right, it just it goes on perpetually. It forevermore, you owe a debt for something truly horrible that happened in a different time to different people that are in no way related to you. They may or may not share some of your skin you. But then the second part that you have to do is you have to say, by virtue of you being white, and hence you have a particular skin you, and even though you may not have anything to do with the American uh, slavery disaster, you came from Croatia and therefore you're first generation, but you are white, therefore you are benefiting from that historical crime that happened, if only because you have certain immutable characteristics that don't differentiate between whether you were the, the, you know, the descendant of a slave, uh, you know, slave owner or not, you're Croatian white, therefore you benefit. And it's through this sleight of hand, this sort of meta mind F word, that you can then have this conversation. Short of that game, the whole thing crumbles. No, that's right. It's a form of it's a form of what I call biological collectivism, and it's a form of of, of wholesale condemning people for nothing but the color of their skin. And if the inverse of that were applied to black people, think of how egregious that would be. Um, it would be horrific. And it actually, the inverse of that was applied when America did have some semblance of white supremacy during Jim Crow, during slavery, when blacks were thought to be cognitively inferior and a host of attributes were attributed to blacks because of the color of their skin. Um, the fact that, and there's another contender to, 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 to think about, and that is that the majority of white people living today, um, they're ancestors were not slaveholders. They, their ancestors actually came after the Civil War. Even, But I make a, a strong claim, even if their ancestors were slaveholders, so what? That has nothing to do with any individual living today. The, right. the idea of collective guilt or ancestral guilt is a heinous, 
concept that's completely un-American and doesn't belong in this country. The sins of the fathers uh, should not be passed on to the children. Um, it has nothing to do with any individual living today. And I still want to debunk this idea of white privilege because I think that the semi-literate or illiterate white person living in Appalachia today with no health care, who cannot read or write, who's living... Uh, he's he's more existence. privileged than Michelle Obama. Sorry, he's more privileged than Michelle Obama. Uh, uh, well, I'm more privileged than that person because I can tell you this. I have taught kids from the cornfields of Indiana, most of whom were in the Ku Klux Klan in, at Southern Illinois, who lived in trailer parks. And with my PhD and with my educational privilege and with my command of the language and my access to, you know, <laughs> to lawyers, any one of them who messed with me or violated my individual rights, I could sue them, I could punish them in ways that they certainly could not leverage a certain kind of power over me. So the idea of white privilege has got to be complicated. Middle-class black people or upper-class black people are certainly much more privileged than a lot of poor white people. So it's not to deny that some semblance of what we call white privilege might not exist, but to unilaterally apply to all white people and to imply that qualitatively they have, or unilaterally they have this, the same amount of power over all black people is pure malarkey. Yeah, no kidding. Uh so as a psychologist, one of the things that interests me is, of course, looking for particular personality traits or other predictors that can help us classify people. So as a, if, if I'm putting on my hat as a, of a consumer psychologist, okay, here's, here's one group of people who buy this product a lot. Here's another group of people who never buy it. And so what are some predictors that can help me identify whether you are going to belong to group A or group B? And here we use things like in multivariate statistics like discriminant analysis or cluster analysis or factor analysis. These are all techniques to, 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 to cluster, to create discrimination between groups to discrimination not in the sense of racial discrimination you're discriminating whether you belong in group a or group b so let me ask you this you come from jamaica uh you there's the unique random combination of genes that constitute jason hill and you say i'm not buying any of this bs i'm not a victim i'm a proud person i stand uh you know on with my merits and flaws i'm not gonna buy into this narrative and then there are these other guys, Mark Lamont Hill and Ibram Kendi and Michael Eric Dyson, all of whom, when I see them, my skin crawls. I detest their intellectual dishonesty so much. I detest the ethos by which they construct their existence. Mm -hmm. What differentiates? I mean, and the reason why I compare you to them, because, you know, you're, you're both... Both groups are supposed to be black people, but Thomas Sowell is with you. Larry Elder is with you. Are there particular personality traits that we can use to say whether people fall into the victimhood camp or into the I stand proud camp? Well, <clears throat> I think there's a sense of entitlement that goes along with victimology and a sense of power lust um, that pays. One of the things that has happened in America in the last 36 years since I've arrived in this country, is that the far left has co-opted and expropriated the agency of, of a lot of black people and the far left, no, let me qualify that. There is no such thing as the far left anymore. The left, because the, 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 the Democratic Party today is just plain left. It's, it, it's no longer far left, it's just, it is, it is the far left. 
So the left has expropriated the agency of a significant number of blacks and has crafted a narrative that has told them that there is this boogie monster out there called the status quo, called patriarchy, called the white man, that is so powerful that there's no way that you can use your creative capabilities and your creative agency against any form of racism or any kind of injustice that you might encounter, that you're completely impotent and that, you're, and that their powers far supersede any kind of creative ways in which you as an individual can circumvent any kind of injustice that you, that you, that you want. So they've, they've sort of canceled the agency of individual blacks who have bought into this. And they've also paid them. These people make a lot of money by claiming to be victims. Ibram Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and Dyson, they garner about $20,000 per lecture. I know, I, so, have, I have to increase my speaking fee based on hearing those numbers. But you're, you see, but you're not a victim. And, 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 and independence and, and confidence, once you claim that you're a victim, that your agency has been eviscerated, that you're a victim, uh, there's a sort of feigned masochism and guilt on the part of the far-left whites, liberal whites, who enjoy a sort of self-flagellation. They enjoy being told that they're racist, that they're, they're, they're bad people. And so there's a lot of redemption and there's a lot of atonement and attrition that come with paying these victims, like Tana Isikos, like Ibram Kendi, a lot of money white, far-left liberal whites feel good about themselves because they now feel, oh, I've gone through a racial sensitive program. I've bought into the equity diversity. I'm an ally. I'm an ally. The diversity equity training programs that Kendi charges an arm and a leg for. People like Robin DiAngelo um, will charge $60,000 to corporations. They feel cleansed. They feel purified. Um, So victimology is a big cottage industry that these almost millionaires, some of them are millionaires, black black victimologists realize that if they they cop out of it, uh, they certainly won't be earning, they certainly are not willing to earn what I earn for a lecture, which is something like $2,000 per lecture. Um, They can earn 20 to $25,000 per lecture because they're buying into a narrative by the far left liberals who feel a sense of cleanliness and atonement by cleansing their conscience, by opening their pocketbooks. But what what this is a this is a recent phenomenon. I mean, these people were considered race hustlers when I first came to this country. There was there was a very pejorative term that was used to describe these people. Now they're looked upon as real constructors of a narrative that gets crafted as identifying systemic racism, identifying oppression, identifying white supremacy, which is the the new national philosophy coupled with critical race theory in this country. And they are the sentinels and the vanguards of a narrative that whites, liberal, mostly bourgeois liberal whites have co-constructed with them. So the difference is that I don't believe in this kind of nonsense. Um, I abuse myself as evidence of its sheer stupidity and its and its and its and its falsity. Um, but they don't mind eviscerating themselves of their dignity, and they don't mind having their um, agency expropriated by these by by the, by the far left because they're after power. 
I, I think so. To, to, to add to what you just said and to, to answer my own question that I posed you, I think the people who fall either in the, you know, Al Sharpton and the, you know, the Kendi and so on, or the Robin D'Angelo, I actually, I have greater derision for the wife, white self-flagellating folks who play the game than the, the black grifters, because at least, the, you know, you could say they're opportunistic. They found a business opportunity, whereas the other ones are not only engaging in this, but they're self, uh, there's a self-loathing element that comes with being white and say, yeah, I agree with you, boss. I need a mentor of color to help me navigate through the world, right? But uh, my, to answer the earlier question about what differentiates, you know, Thomas Sowell and you and Larry Elder from some of these, uh, you know, black uh, agitators or whatever you want to call them or hustlers, I think it's dignity, right? In Arabic, mm-hmm. and I, I always, I always, I often mention this word uh, from Arabic, uh, as, as you probably know, Arabic is my mother tongue. Sharaf in Arabic means, you know, it's your personhood, it's your dignity. And as you know, in the Middle East, your honor is everything, right? There's, there's this kind of dichotomy between honor and shame, and everything is based on standing tall and being dignified. Mm-hmm. And I think someone like you or Thomas Sowell is saying, whoa, whoa, you, I'm not a victim. I'm not less than you. I'm not better than you as a function of my immutable traits. I'm going to present myself to the world and judge me. Well, that requires dignity. That requires standing tall. And I think that's the difference between all the grifters and folks who don't play that game. I think so. I think that's right. And I think that it's a selling of one's soul for power. And and it's uh, because dignity is something that is, I think, is God-given. We all have... We all have intrinsic dignity and invalid worth and invalid value, but the loss for power and the loss for fame um, are far greater than standing alone. Um, and also, there is a there is a sense in which there is a new. It goes along with a new hatred and a new what I call the new America phobia, and a new desire to cancel out the West Western civilization. We, we cannot, I think, separate this expropriation of black agency and the co-optation of agency with a larger, darker movement that is at hand that, that you pointed out in your book, The Parasitic Mind, which has to do with the cancellation of America, of, of Western civilization in order to usher in, to change the, the DNA of the West, to usher in what I think is a really dark agenda, which is a Marxist, socialist, communist um, movement that will bring about a totalitarian state. Um, you can't do that if you've got a bunch of dignified, independent black set of blacks who will not have their agents expropriated. You see, this, this sort of cancel culture, this erasure of, of, of agency that is part of the victimology movement funded by liberal bourgeois, far left whites, is, is quite nefarious because when you've expropriated the agency of these of these, of these these what I call these race hustlers, you've got them as foot soldiers, as book privates yeah. in the large army to dismantle Western civilization because you've bought them out. You've bought them. Yeah. Well, what's happening? At, I mean, I'm sure at DePaul it's no different than my, at my school. Are you guys getting every 15 seconds some new seminar that you have to attend? I mean, I, I'll start with me and then you can fill in whatever your reality is. So it turns out, uh, Jason, that until I took a seminar on how to interact with uh, women and so on, that my 
you know, magnanimous university taught me. I, I didn't know. I would, I'm 57 now, but until I was 55 and I had to take a seminar to learn how to speak to, to people, uh, I, apparently I was lost in, in, in a sea of misogyny. And then more recently, I've had to take a, a systems of oppression and intersectionality uh, module uh, again, so that I could learn how to speak to, to and here in Canada, we call it BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, People of Color. Because until, I've been a professor for almost 30 years, because until I took that seminar, I otherwise wouldn't have known how to interact with uh, the BIPOC. Uh, now, imagine someone coming with my background from the Middle East. And as you correctly pointed out, even though I have probably the, the highest victimology poker hand possible, given the reality that I faced in the Middle East, escaping execution as, as a Lebanese Jew in, in Lebanon, I'm not a victim. I don't, I mean, yes, I was victimized, but mm -hmm. what defines my personhood is that I've overcome my, you know, childhood. That doesn't define me. It's part of my history. It's a regrettable part. I sometimes still have nightmares about it, but it doesn't define me. What defines me is that I stand tall with dignity and say, I've overcome. So uh, do you face the same thing at DePaul where every 15 seconds somebody is coming to the American Jamaican, if I may say, gay man and explaining to him ab about the systems of oppression and intersectionality? Well, it certainly happened two years ago when I, you know, I'm radically um, uh, pro-Jewish civilization and pro-Israel. And so when I, wrote oh, yes. this when I wrote this article two years ago defending uh praising Jewish civilization and defending Netanyahu's right to an extradition scenario. And there was a, a huge outcry and um, the students took over the building and there was a demand for my resignation for the university to fire me. And I was censured by the university, by the faculty council and called a genocidal war criminal and uh, an Arab hater and all sorts of nefarious claims were made about me. And I was asked, I was, well, they tried to put me into a racial sensitivity workshop and all sorts of workshops which I steadfastly denied uh, to participate in. Uh, and yes, I was lectured uh, about how to address people and, and how to and how to approach Muslims and um, castigated for claiming that not all cultures were equal because I made I, I dared to make the audacious claim that all, not all cultures were equal and that Jewish, Jewish civilization was an international treasure trove because I also dared to look at the contributions that Jews had made to Western civilization, to world civilization, and argue that Jewish civilization and Western civilization are inextricably linked, and that, in my opinion, being a, a student of anthropology from 56, from as far back as 12, I thought that Jewish civilization was the most superior civilization that ever existed, and that given a diasporic people's um, exilic existence for millennia that the contributions that they had made and their ability to survive and linguistic uh, national differences uh, to survive intact as a people was nothing short of miraculous and that they were an extraordinary people. Well, I was punished for it and uh, I still continue to get vitriolic letters of, of hatred and I'm called a lover of apartheid and genocide, which the Jewish people and the Israeli people are called. So yes, I've been lectured to and punished um, because I extol the virtues of Jewish civilization and, and, and I'm a defender of Israel. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm of the opinion that 
people are free to elevate their high school opinions to the level of their sophomoric high school opinions to the level of human knowledge, but they don't have the right to impose it upon me. And I'm also always said I'm not a statistician. I've got a trivia, so they're free to see their invectives. But, but, but yes, to get serious about it again, um, the university sends out quite often these blurbs, I call them, or these these workshops where um, even the honors program now has become quite. Which I used to, I was inducted, and in, I think I've been kicked out of it. Um, which is an old-fashioned great books program has become quite activist. You know, it's like choose an issue. Um, Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement or the trans movement. Um, so everything is becoming activist oriented and the focus is less on scholarship and less on old-fashioned canonical texts and more on training the students to be activists and um, and not just activists but to be dissenters and to be um, revolutionaries against the canonical texts. So I have taught courses on neurobiology, which is not my specialty. I spent five years boning up on a course on philosophy and the brain and neurobiology, and the course was taken away from me because students complained that I was teaching a course on white supremacist thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may be, because I know that Larry Elder is the blackface of white supremacy, as the LA <laughs> Times explained to us. And then recently, Condoleezza Rice was accused of being the new face of blacks uh, of uh, white supremacy. White. So you could well be the Carib Caribbean version of white supremacy, possibly. No, I'm sure that I'm sure after reading my book, what do white people, white Americans or black people, they're going to say that because there are many claims that I make in the book, including debunking critical race theory and 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 and, and outing what some of these Afro pessimists and black nihilists who actually claim that the existence of black people is predicated on the annihilation of white people, that they will make such claims. But it's fine. I mean, you know, one, you and I both know that when you try to speak the truth, um, there are people who will sort of twist the narrative. And uh, what we, we used to, one has to sort of stand above all of that nonsense with one's self-esteem intact, because, um, again, it's it's... There are honorable adversaries in the world, which I take quite seriously, and then they're just the the, the, the gutter snipers that you have to sort of ignore. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning this because uh, I've recently been talking about some real unbelievably nasty thieves, defamers who've been kind of hounding me for a year. You know, mm -hmm. saying some unbelievable stuff about me. I mean, of course, all of which is a, a, a million percent false. Some really, really awful stuff. And look, I'm someone. I mean, you you, you know me. You've seen my public engagement. I, I truly am a, a honey badger to the fullest. I mean, I, you know, I, you come after me, I'll come after you tenfold. It's just I'm built that way. Mm -hmm. But but I've had to kind of recognize that pragmatically speaking, it's oftentimes you know a worse thing to go after some of, as you call them, bottom dwellers. I think that's what you, you call them. Or is that what you said? Bottom dwellers, I think? Is that, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, because if you, they, they're looking for you to pay attention to them. And then once you engage them, then in a sense they've won because, but it's very, very difficult for someone, again, who has sharaf, to use the Arabic word, who's got honor, to walk away from a fight where someone is, you know, trying to tar your reputation and so on. So how do you, I mean, how do you do it? I mean, I, of course, you know who you are and, and I know who I am and the truth is the truth and nobody can deny that. 
but do you ever feel as though it's hard to go you know the proverbial like this and if not i mean how do you do how do you navigate through all that venom that comes at you well i kind of have a spine of steel and it, it's not that it's not exhausting it's very exhausting but i i think that instead of swatting the worker bees i try to go after the hives <laughs> and uh, and so what what i do is i just simply I, I, I depersonalize the attacks and I say, look, these are, these are little worker bees and the hives are the universities. So I, I, I infuriate them by writing articles and, and writing in my books that we need to defund the universities. We, we need to completely shut down social sciences and humanities departments. We need to get rid of the um, National Education Association and bust up the teachers' unions and obstreperous children who, who violate free speech and, and professors who are using our universities as bastions of indoctr- as indoctrination centers need to be got rid of, not because I'm against free speech, but because they are curtailing free speech. Exactly. So I, you know, I go after the, the, the hives. I say, let's, let's stop swatting the worker bees and, and where are the hives? And we know where the hives are. The highest are the universities in, in the West. The highest are certain politicians um, who <clears throat> are advocates of, of creating these policies that the university presidents, the provosts, and the deans who are architects and are giving the ammunition to these students. I mean, the students are the worker bees. The real problem makers are the university administrators yeah. and the intellectuals themselves who are haters of the West. And... Um, so I tend to have a very thick skin professionally. Um, I'm not easily weakened by um, invectives and vitriolic statements. I mean, and the sense of alienation is a little bit harder where I am ostracized and I don't feel like I belong in my university. I don't feel like I have a community. That's a little bit harder. The comments themselves, the name calling, I sort of just, that I can just brush off. But it is terribly, and I, I do want to say this because I know there are a lot of professors out there who are part of the silent majority and are very, very afraid of speaking out either because they don't have tenure or in our case, we are very, I've been teaching, I've professed for 26 years now, we, I'm a full professor like you are, who do have tenure but are very, very afraid of being ostracized and we're human beings, we want to feel a sense of belonging. But for me, I have to live by my principles, I have to live by my values because those are the preconditions that allow me to give others to engage in the world with integrity. Yeah. And, and But it is terribly lonely to have only two people in my university speak to me. Is, is that literally true? People just- That is literally true. I think my chair, speak, my chair speaks to me. And um, I think there are two or three other people, but they will only speak to me if I meet them off campus. Like if a Starbucks off campus, because they're, they're definitely afraid of seeing being seen with me because they'll be ostracized. They'll be- um, yes, and these are people who have been professors for 40 years at the university, it's and they'll say, what they write me emails and say, I support what you do, but let's meet for coffee off campus. That's terribly lonely. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's psychologically, that gets to me a little bit, because as Aristotle says, we are social creatures. And, um, but I, I do have supporters, you know, people such as yourself, people like, I am her CLA and Neil Ferguson and, and a host of other people who are 
like-minded, but they're dispersed across the country. Yeah. But and, the, uh, the, the beauty of all of these platforms that we have now is that we don't need to feel so isolated. You can just pick up the phone and there I am smiling and supporting you. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, of course. Uh, you mentioned, so I want to uh, drill down on a few things that you mentioned about the social sciences, the humanities, and the, you know, the, the defunding of the universities. I think, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I'm, I'm almost certain you're going to agree with what I'm going to say. It's not so much that the humanities and the social sciences are epistemologically doomed a priori. There is wonderful things. I mean, you're a philosophy professor, so I don't need to be lecturing you about this, right? So there are mm -hmm. wonderful things that one can pursue with full integrity, with awe, with wonder, uh, that will enrich their intellectual inner lives, whether it be in the humanities or in the social sciences. I think the problem with the humanities, so, because I don't want people to think that we're saying that those disciplines are you know, cancerous a priori. It's no. that once they have been parasitized, to use my terminology, once they have been parasitized by all of these idea pathogens, they cease to be those liberating pursuits, right? So you can be a sociologist and be doing wonderful stuff. You could be an art historian and doing fantastic stuff. But if you're trying to be an art historian and a sociologist and not pursue some truth within the context of your discipline, but rather you are a parasitic activist, that's where it becomes a problem. So I think what you're saying, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that shut down this new parasitized versions of the humanities and the social sciences and let's return to the, their true manifestations. That's right. We need the liberal arts for many, many reasons, because the, the proper job of a liberal arts education, as I see it, is among other things, to establish, uh, to, to bring about uh, citizens who will be eventually be sovereign, autonomous, self-governing citizens who can navigate themselves in the world and who will be autonomous thinkers. Um, so philosophy and psychology and history and especially literature, which brings about a, a broadened moral imagination, expanded consciousness, um, are amazing disciplines that need to be cultivated. But in their current That's it. iterations, they have been so um, overtaken by woke and wokeism, we can call it woke, woke, woke I call it, call it woke supremacy, and laboring on the stranglehold of our new national philosophy, which is critical race theory and woke, wokeism, that something has to be done. The age of the universe is almost over. Yeah. And unless unless we can really press for some kind of intellectual diversity, not racial and ethnic and gender, of course, sexual diversity, but real intellectual diversity where conservative viewpoints along with old-fashioned liberal viewpoints can meet and can have a contestation um, with respect, with civility, as we used, as we had it at one point, um, then something drastic really has to be done. These far-left Marxist professors and postmodern wackos who are using the classrooms as bully pulpits indoctrinating students. And I've seen it where they punish any kind of, of rejoinder, any kind of rejoinder that's coming forth from, it's not even necessarily a, a conservative viewpoint, just any kind of viewpoint that descends from received orthodoxy is punished. This is unacceptable in university. I would say, so I think, so to, to, to discuss sort of the future of the university, I think two major issues need to be resolved and they, they are not necessarily related. Of course, we've got all the, the woke stuff, all of the, the 
idea pathogens that have proliferated from the university setting to now every nook and cranny of society. So we need to de the university. Mm. But I think there's a separate second issue that is perhaps, I, I don't know if it's as important, but certainly quite important. And that is the bureaucratic bloat uh, within uh. the university setting. So that, that's completely separate from the woke stuff, right? So for mm-hmm. example, yesterday I put out a tweet because I was just so pissed off where I said, here's academia. You set up a, a exploratory meeting to explore the possibility of a task force to start a commission to examine the feasibility of having coffee in the faculty lounge. So it will take us 680 meetings. It will cost $2 million before we decide by vote using particular procedural rules whether we should have coffee in the faculty lounge or not. Where in the same time that this is happening, someone has colonized Mars already. Okay, so there is a lack of velocity. There is a mm-hmm. bureaucratic heaviness that really, I mean, I, I always, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it somewhat facetious, facetiously, but not really. You know, innovators is where they go to the university if they wish to die a quiet life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a story, I can't remember his name. I think his name is Peter Hood. This is a secondhand story, so I don't know of its exact veracity. But apparently he was a professor, and someone will probably correct me in the comments section if I'm wrong. I'm, as I said, I'm getting this secondhand story. Apparently he was a professor at Caltech who was a very, very esteemed professor, and he decided that he could no longer handle all the nonsense in the university setting. He left academia, even though he was a very well-respected professor, and then went and set up, I think it's called now the Hood Institute. I, I hope I'm not botching the story up. Where, you know, within very quickly, he, he gets this massive donations and he's able to do great things. So I think unless we're able to reintroduce creativity, innovation, boldness, velocity of thinking into the universities, I think they should die because they are antithetical to mm-hmm. the irrever- irreverent creative thinker. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right, and I think one of the solutions that could bring about some semblance of accountability is to get pair, to get alumni donors more involved, where conditionals are fixed to the donations that are that are that are allocated to the universities. I think in the past, alumni donors and donors in general, large corporations, have given funds in good faith, thinking that they don't want to get too involved in the pedagogy, the curricula of the universities because they have trusted the administrative administrative bodies. But I think when parents are realizing that their children in gender studies are receiving unscientific uh, educational uh, models, they're being told that, man, I got in trouble because I said that philosophy is a quoting play of the mother of all sciences. And I was told that men are giving birth to children and I was reprimanded and told that when I said that when, when a man gives a birth to a child, it's a trans, it's a, it's a, it's a trans man, which means it's a biological woman with a reproductive apparatus in place, and all hell broke loose. When parents realize that their children are receiving this kind of education, alumni donors realize that the unscientific nature that has taken over the educational system and withdraw their funding or give funding on the basis that truth will supersede politics that's something called truth and objective 
and that, that there's an objective reality, that there are objective means to adjudicate truth claims, not just feelings and emotions and hysteria, but logic and reason are the tools to adjudicate among truth claims, and that there is an objective reality. And that we will see, we might begin to see some kind of accountability um, taking place in universities, but alumni donors and, and, and business and corporations cannot continue funding their destroyers. You know, when the, when the advocates of the, the destruction of Western civilization is being funded by JP Morgan and these corporations that give $100, $100 million to Black Lives Matter, and yeah. in my university, you know, Black Lives Matter has a huge place. But at the same time, Black Lives Matter is advocating the breaking up of the nuclear family, the breaking up of the U.S. banks, as their Marxist train, espousing Marxism, uh, calling for the removal of all canonical texts, which means the removal of all European thinkers. Um, there is something of, what you call it, um, cognitive dissonance going on in the universal system and in the minds of these donors. And the job of, I think, a public intellectual is to make it really explicitly known to these donors that you are funding your own destroyers. So do you think, though, that the, the donors are simply unaware? So they're cognitive misers, right? Humans are cognitively lazy. And so they see BLM, they say, hey, I'm all for you know black people living with dignity. So they don't drill down any further to explore some of the nefarious positions that come with being a BLM supporter. And therefore, because they're cognitive misers, they say, okay, here's $10 million. So is it that they're unaware and it is our job to make them aware? Or is it that they are aware, but the self-flagellation is simply too intoxicating? So I know BLM is full of garbage, but I'm still gonna give them $10 million because then my my cool white friends will think that I am an ally. Which one is it? I think it's both. And I think also what I discern is that a lot of well-intentioned people just think that all this stuff, this cancel culture, this woke supremacy, the, the, the nefarious nature of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, all the infiltrations, all what, what you call the idea pathogens that are, that are part of a, an intellectual pandemic, it's, I've heard people say it's just a phase, it'll pass. And I said, no, it's not a phase. It is, it is fundamentally changing the DNA of the West. Just look at the Islamification of Europe and don't tell me that there are more mosques in Rotterdam. With the last time I was in the Netherlands, where the European, the, the Dutch government is funding mosques and in, in, in the Netherlands at a far greater rate than it is. It is not even funding churches, it is penalizing and taxing Christian churches. It's amazing. And Right, so there's a systemic effort on the part of the West to undermine itself. And some of these people think that it's just a phase. So the, the West has lost its purpose, it's lost its mission, its mission goals. So it's a combination of both, plus the, plus the sense that people, I think a lot of people in the West, in Canada, in, in, in England, in, in, in particularly in the United States of America, cannot bring themselves to admit that there are destroyers within the hemisphere that really want to bring down the West. They just cannot admit that that sort of evil, and it is evil, really exists in people and, and as part of the DNA, the emerging DNA of this culture. 
that we are in the midst of an enormous culture war that is not weakening, that these people want them dead. They want, they want to start a war on multiple fronts. They want a class war. They want a, the trans people want a gender war. Um, a race war. A, they want a race war. Yeah. They want a, a complete their systemic nihilism. They want to destroy the foundational values of the West of America to bring in a new world order. And most people find that too horrific to sustain on a protracted level. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, because you were talking about Islamization and so on, so I, I, I got prompted the name Ayan Hirsi Ali, which you mentioned earlier. So I've made this point on several occasions, but it's worth repeating here and, and getting your, your feedback to it. Uh, I've often remarked that some of the staunchest defenders of the foundational values of the West are usually immigrants who have mm-hmm. buffeted at the panoply of other societies that exist that could come and say, hey, the West, don't take for granted what you have because your your societies is not the default value of history. History is not made of freedom and individual dignity and so on. So you got Ayan Hirsi Ali, you got Gad Saad. To some extent, you got Jason Hill who, and I wanna, cause I wrote this down, I wanna come back. You said, Jamaica is the most homophobic country in the world. I, I wanna drill down on this. So, you know, you've seen other societies. So mm-hmm. it's, it's almost as if it's become incumbent on immigrants to the West who've been elsewhere to say, mm-hmm. You better wake up and fight for this. Do you feel that that's that's true? That it's oftentimes the most vociferous voices in the defense of the West are immigrants. I think that's true. And Jamaica, I also grew up under a socialist regime and watched my country be destroyed by socialism at the age of twelve. Watch all the industries be nationalized and watch a brain drain occur in Jamaica, where the entrepreneurs and industrialists—we used to call them industrialists when I was a child leave for Canada and the United States and England. I think that's right. I think, and that's, it, it, it takes witnessing deprivation yeah. and complete atrophy taking place in one's native country and sitting back and realizing that it's the absence of certain foundational principles and a certain kind of philosophic system that would be needed, like freedom, like liberty, and, and 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 but more than that, questioning why we need freedom. What is freedom? A precondition of freedom is a precondition for survival. It, it is consonant with man's rational nature as a as a as a human being. Asking these philosophical questions and realizing that the United States is an unprecedented phenomenon. Its founding fathers got the right political system to match. This is a point I make in my book. They were the first to match the political system with man's rational nature. That the milieu, the political milieu that was created in 1776 matched the requirements of human nature. That is, we need freedom to exercise our reason to create what John Stuart Mill would call experiments in living. And most countries have tried various experiments which have failed. America got it right. And so we realize this because we've lived in failed experiments. Exactly. That's exactly we've right. Come, we've come to the a country that is not perfect, was born with a birth defect that has re- reneged on its promises, Martin Luther King yeah. pointed out. 
but is a work in progress on that amazing experiment that was forged in the crucibles of 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. And it's been improving, it's been progressing, it's been evolving. And so we've seen that experiment, an unprecedented experiment forged by geniuses who are lambasted, that who should be lionized and, and valorized, but who are lambasted as, as evil uh, creatures by, by the left today. We've seen that that experiment and the enormous contributions that it has made to human flourishing, and it's made some, and it's made incidentally people of color, people like I am, people such as myself, come to this country and flourish and achieve something quite substantial of our lives. Indeed. Uh, so let me go back. I, I mean, it's kind of anticlimactic to talk about something negative after such a, a nice, uh, you know, statement. Uh, why do you say that Jamaica is uniquely or or the champion of homophobia? Because I can, of course, I could I could list many other countries that would vie for that title. What, is there something unique about the Jamaican experiment that makes them more homophobic? And if so, what is it? Well, I think it tails probably a little bit behind Uganda. Uh, you know, it's homophobic as Saudi Arabia, but there is something about because I think Saudi Arabia is. Uh, it's homophobia is predicated on its Wahhabi religious right. faith, and I think Uganda is more like Jamaica. It's a cultural thing. I just I think with Jamaica, it's a consistent part of one's identity to be homophobic. Um, having lived there until I was almost 21, 20, when I left there when I was 20, if you're not homophobic, then you're somehow not authentically Jamaican. It's just Every single com- conversation is inundated with homophobic remarks. It's almost as if part of your socialization is dependent on being homophobic. And um, it's, a, it's a religious country, but there are other religious countries in the Caribbean that I think are not as deeply homophobic. Um, so it befuddles me as to why it's so deeply homophobic. I mean, there are there are many, many theories, but when I was growing up, you certainly could get killed. I think things have improved a little bit, but you certainly could get killed if you were identified as one. Um, there were all sorts of savage ways in which homosexuals were killed and tortured. And um, But it's really endemic to one's identity as a heterosexual person, even as a gay person, to be anti-gay. Um, you know, one is... As you were saying it, I don't know if you noticed my face. I kind of went like this and I was smiling and I was and I actually got goosebumps as you said that when you said. So let me repeat what you said, because I'm going to contextualize it to my reality growing up in Lebanon. You said it is part of your identity in being Jamaican to be homophobic. And as you said that, I said, finally, there's somebody who understands what it is to grow up Jewish in the Middle East. Because I've always explained to people that the, 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 the fabric that unites every single nook and cranny of mm. the Middle East is Jew hatred. It mm. is definitional. It is mm-hmm. existential, right? It, it literally is. Even from the most virulent anti-Semite to the passing just kind of regular in the street Jew hater, to, to exist in the Middle East is to blame everything on the diabolical Jew. 
It rained outside, it's the Jew. Your wife cheated mm -hmm. on you, it's the Jew who put those sinful thoughts. You got diabetes, it's the Jew who is holding back the drugs that would solve your diabetes. Everything is due to the Jew. So I really, I, I got that goosebump feeling because it really is, a, it, it's an existential hatred, right? It's, yeah, it yeah, defines yeah. who you are. You're not Jamaican if you don't hate gays. You're not Middle Easterner. And when I mean Middle Easterner, I'm referring to one particular noble faith if you don't hate the Jews. Mm -hmm. That's true. Is there a way to eradicate that hatred from someone if they've been inculcated it straight out of the womb? It's very, very difficult because I think it's... Um, not, in, not in a generation, maybe in a subsequent generation, um, because with the case of Jews, for example, I think that one of the reasons, in my opinion, that Jews are hated is because it's hatred of the good for being the good. That is, it's hatred. Well, there, it, there's like a resentment for Jews being the, dis, the discoverers of the law, of the, of, of, of the bearers of, of monotheism. And I don't think Jews have ever been forgiven for being the discoverers of the law yeah of, of of god's law and of being um the 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 i wouldn't say the creator but the discoverer of of of, of monotheism yeah. and the fact that jews excel disproportionately at so many skills and Give, you know, given the, the larger population, there is a great deal of envy. Yeah. And envy is a very corrosive emotion that calcifies the heart. And so when I look out at the world and I see so much anti-Semitism, behind it is a sense of envy and how one transforms that envy into something like an aspirational identity like I want to be as successful rather than say, I, let, let, let me look at why Jews are so successful. Let me look at how I can become like a Jew in the sense of be hardworking, uh, extolling the virtues of, of literacy. I mean, just everything that Jews have done to become an extraordinary, exceptional people. Why can't I inculcate, inculcate some of those virtues in my character? It's far easier to to hate escape, to scapegoat them, of course, and to attribute one's failures and one's the paucity of, of one's imagination um, on 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 the on the Jew. So I think it's it's a very very difficult thing because it, envy is a very lazy and easy emotion. Um, it's far harder to sort of admire the very phenomenon that is part of your shadow self because yeah. when one looks at the exceptionalism of the Jewish people, one is reminded of how far one would have to strive in terms of excellence to realize that exceptionalism in one's character and one simply might not have the capacity to, to achieve yeah. it. And so it's easy to just spew invectives and hatred. So I think it's a very, very it's a burden that Jewish people have borne since 
their inception as a people. And believe me, I'm still experiencing right now from some of my tormentors. It's unbelievable. It's it's un, you know you think that having left Lebanon in the mid seventies and moved mm-hmm. to the West somehow you know we live in a more enlightened society. But if I showed you some of the stuff that comes my way, it is absolutely unbelievable. It can be soul crushing. I try to do this as much as I can, but once in a while. You know, I'm, I'm a very pure person. And so I think to myself, how could such a person exist? Like, how could someone actually write these things? And sometimes, maybe in my naive self, I think, what if I actually reached out to this person? What if I tried to engage him? And then I think, that's why I asked you the question, do you think you could change that person? Because if the answer is an unequivocal no, then any efforts to try to reach them is just completely wasted time right but i but the the pure side of me wants to think well you know most people are redeemable you can reach them and they mm-hmm. can come around mm-hmm. you know so it's it's hard it's hard, it's a hard balance to strike well the culture itself i mean look europe is so anti-semitic that people don't even realize it and the un is anti-semitic so so many of your institutions through which our socialization uh, occurs uh are anti-semitic so it's a it's an it's an, a lot of our universities are deeply anti-Semitic, surreptitiously so. Um, so the institutions in which our socialization uh, take place are deeply anti-Semitic. So it makes the battle, I think, that much greater because we are social creatures who are socialized partially through these institutions. And when the institutions themselves, I mean, I think the UN, one, one way would just be to abolish the bloody UN. Yeah, I know. Get rid of it because it is one of the most anti-Semitic institutions I've ever come across. I think Israel gets more condemnations than all of the other, well, not other, all of the hellish countries combined. I think uh, Almost Hillel Neuer does this analysis. I don't know if you know him. I think he, he, work, he, does, he works for UN Watch or I, I don't remember the exact organization. He's a wonderful guy who collects all that stats. And you can literally see, let's say, 25 condemnations of Israel and then the rest of the world combined, it's two. So, I mean, it's literally the case, according to the UN, that all evil at the global scale comes from Israel and all mm-hmm. other countries are just bastions of morality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's an existential problem that um, can only be fought, I think, by Jews being completely what I, I'll tell you what I find very problematic um, is, is, a, is a inverse problem, which is the, the Jewish left. I mean, I can't tell you how many, I've never earned a single penny by talking to a Jewish organization. I do this out of just sheer respect and admiration. I mean, I charge other organizations. So when people say you're, you know, you're an advocate of Jewish civilization because you're making money, I've never been paid a single penny. <laughs> But I, what I find, I've been canceled by so many Jewish organizations on the left who've said, we can't invite you anymore because you are, um, you're, you're, you, you say bad things about Hamas. And if we're just nicer to those people, they'll be good to us. And I said, I've read their charter. I've read yeah, the, yeah. I have a charter of Hamas on my desk. Yeah. I have a charter of the Palestinian Authority. They want you dead. So I think I'll, when leftist Jews stop being apologists and, and, and terminate the fantasy that Hamas and a significant section of the Palestinian community really, really like them and realize that because nobody, when, when people smell blood in the water, they become like sharks right. and they'll circle the prey. I find that it's the, 
apologetic mode of existence that a significant number of leftist Jews exercise that invites this kind of or encourages kind of hatred. And I think, and I've been saying this, when Jews stand up and stop being apologetic and assert like alphas, their exceptionalism, in many, many cases, their superiority in many, many domains. Um, then I think I think I think the change has to come within, right? Within within the community and within individuals themselves, and say I'm I'm not ashamed of, of of my accomplishments. I'm not ashamed of my culture, and that's why I promote. I actually literally, and I'll say this on your show because I do, and I've won. I've been awarded two awards. I support Zionism for that reason that I think the Zionists are the ones who right. say to hell with you all. You know, this is going to get me into trouble. I'm speaking to a Zionist. You're speaking to a Jamaican <laughs> Zionist oh, God. who supports Zionism because I'm I think screwed. the Zionists are the ones who say Jewish identity and Zionism are inextricably linked. And and if anything is going to save the, the thwart the anti-Semitism it's going to be the strength and it's going to be the right. unapologetic nature of, of the Zionist philosophy. I can tell you just uh, uh, to support your uh, story about getting canceled from uh, leftist Jews. Uh, in April, I was invited to speak at this wonderful uh, speaker series uh, that is organized by the Jewish Public Library here in Montreal. And uh, so the Jew, the Lebanese Jew who escaped persecution in Lebanon was going to speak at the Jewish public library. And there was a huge campaign that was mounted to cancel me by leftist Jews. But to their credit, uh, the Jewish public library did not buckle and the event went, uh, you know, perfectly fine and, and, and everybody was happy. But, but listen, the look, when you have queers for Palestine as a oh group... God. I mean, what what could be more cognitively inconsistent? That so, right. so you can go to Tel Aviv, one of the most gay-friendly, LGBTQ-friendly places on earth, mm-hmm. or you could support, you know, uh, Gaza, and that's where you're. That's the hill that you're dying on. So it's just it's a level of cognitive distortion that's very difficult to comprehend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me let, let's end it on a good note. Do you have any sense of optimism regarding anything that we've discussed today? Do you see the tide turning? Do you see the fulcrum swinging the other way? A- any good parting words before we wrap this up? I do. I I think that in terms of the stranglehold that the left has had on critical race theory, in terms of reparations, in terms of pulling this country and pulling Western civilization back, I think there's going to be a serious, I think the backlash has already started because because I think that when parents are realizing that their children are receiving an education forged in hatred, when they're taught critical race theory, when they're taught all the values that are inimical to the ones that they've taught their children and their children are coming home and actually turning against them because this is what is going on in the K through 12 education system where, for example, teachers are telling their, uh, their, 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 their students to tell their parents, do not gender your child at home because when they come in the classroom, we will not be gendering them. And then they go home and they're gendered. Um, 
parents are becoming horrified and you see the outrage yeah. that is emerging on a grassroots level, I think the backlash has already started. And I think people are just sick and tired of being told how to raise their children. They've handed their children over in good faith to these large government schools, but the private schools are becoming as woke as ever because of course um, there's money in, in wokeism right now. But I think the I think the tide is changing. I think people are becoming sick and tired of having their conscience and their freedom of speech being strangled. And I think it's I think we're going to have to suffer a little bit more. Um, and our speech is going to have to be muffled. But I do think that the West is in decline and it might have to decline a little bit more before we have a silent majority really, really wake up. Right. Um, and and assert their voices against the tyranny of, of radical leftism that is really trying, and I will say this, trying to fundamentally change the, the DNA of, of the West in general. May may uh, your cry for the silent majority to wake up be the the catalyst of you know changes to come. Uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I want to repeat the name of your book so that people, when they finish watching the show, head out and order it. What do white Americans owe black people? You are a true honey badger, sir. So you have internalized all of the message from chapter eight of the parasitic mind. You are a top honey badger. Thank you so much for coming on. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Cheers.